Charles Spurgeon said, none but the Holy Spirit can give a man the key to the treasury of David, and even he gives it rather to experience than study. Happy is he for who himself knows the secret of the Psalms. Somebody has said that the Psalms gives the feelings of Christ. Every high, every low that a person could experience are found in the Psalms. And every emotion that you could think of are found in the Psalms. But like Spurgeon said, you don't learn them by study, but by experience. And that's what we see the psalmist give us a great hope through those experiences. I w- when I did go to Israel, uh, the one time I went, you know, I, I got, went up to the caves of En Gedi, and it was a really neat place, just like the Bible said, there was caves everywhere, you know, where Saul hid, where, where David was hiding, and I was just blessed to be there. And some guy said, man, it's really sad that David had to come up here and hide in these caves. Not to me, man. We got some blessed psalms as a result of David hiding in those caves. A real encouragement to us this morning. But Psalm 46 is about God, our refuge, and strength. This psalm is about the sufficiency of God uh, for today and for all time, forever. And some of us, I'm willing to bet this morning, are facing difficulties right now. If you're not, you will be, because it's not a matter of if, it's when. So some are serious, and, you know, some may not be so serious. The, the, the whole question is, are you ready to face them? Are you ready to face them? Verses 1 through 3 speaks about, the psalmist is going to talk about the confidence in the protection of God. And I think sometimes we don't believe that God can protect us. And I remember one time when I was working in the secular work field that I knew a man who was in a gang. And we talked a lot. And he called me one night. And he said, Joe, he says, I'm surrounded by an opposing gang. They got my house surrounded. He says, I don't know what to do. And I just said, let's pray. Because I didn't know what to do either. I know those things don't usually turn out very well. But I said, man, let's pray. And so we prayed, and I said, you know what? Do what you got to do. You know, call the police or whatever. And, you know, it was the last thing he was going to do. But he, he just prayed, and he, it was about two hours later. He called me and said, man, I don't know what. But he says, they're gone. So, you know, there's times when we get in situations where we think, God can't even protect me. This is just this is too big for God. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. God is our refuge and strength, a very, notice, present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters roar and are troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling thereof. The emphasis here in this psalm is on God himself. And the point is, is that God alone is our refuge. There is no other. Nothing in all of creation can be compared to our refuge, Jehovah Almighty. And here we're taught to test and to try our faith. And Warren Wiersbe says that faith is always tested for at least three reasons. One, 
to prove our faith is real. Two, to help our faith to grow. And third, to bring glory to the Lord. And he said, a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. The psalmist here is expecting a, a really disastrous, a disastrous cata- a catastrophe. He's expecting, you know, uh, uh, he imagines a terrible catastrophic disaster, and yet through his faith, he stays the course. And he calmly trusts in God, though he's expecting a disastrous storm. But you see, by expecting it, he prepares for it. So he prepares for such a storm. He prepares himself to face such a disaster. You see, our faith isn't for an hour or a day. It is to be what we live by every single day throughout our whole life, even to the hour of our death. Our faith is meant to give us stability and it's meant to strengthen us in every calamity that we ever experience, no matter how, how great, no matter how sad or how bad, in every crisis, no matter how sudden it may come. And many people who once walked in faith have let their faith wither. And it's become weak. And it's become weak through simple neglect. That is lack of prayer, lack of reading the word, and lack of fellowship. Three key elements when you look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42, for the, the, the elements of faith, a strong church. Those were three huge factors. Now, some people, and you know, briefly touched on here, Manny showed those folks doing a money dance. Some people think having enough money is the answer to all of our problems, that it will make them happy and secure. So you see, they set out to get rich, financially secure. Like the rich man in the parable that Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 12. Let me read to you what Jesus said about this rich man. What he, he's talking about what the rich man was saying to himself. Jesus, the rich man said, And I will say to my soul, Thou hast much goods laid up for many years. So take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this night... Your soul will be required of you. Then whose shall those things be? Those that you have worked hard for all of your life. You see, the farmer thought, man, this is the life. I got it made. The man was a success by worldly standards. He was satisfied. He was secure. I mean, what more could he want? Because that's what most people want. They want to be satisfied with life, and they want to be secure in life. But Jesus didn't see him that way. You see, a person, Jesus called him a fool. Jesus called him a fool. Again, it was because wealth can't keep us alive when our time comes to die. Okay? The, the, he just saw, the farmer just saw life. He was enjoying life. And, and yet, Jesus saw him facing death. But again, wealth cannot keep us alive when our time comes to die. It can't buy back the opportunities that we missed, missed while we were thinking about ourselves and ignoring other people. Again, Jesus called him a fool because, again, when he dies, he stands before God at the final judgment. And when you're at that final judgment, you better know Christ because there's no turning back. He's saying a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God. 
if he had only known. One day, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem when he, was, when he told the disciples what was going to happen there. They couldn't understand it. They couldn't understand what Jesus was trying to tell them. So some of the people thought that Jesus was going to Jerusalem to, to free Israel from Roman rule and to set up the kingdom of God. Others followed him, like many did, just to, just to see what he was going to do, his next miracle. As they got closer to Jerusalem and Jesus saw the city ahead, he started to cry. And this is what he said. If you had known, I want you to remember those words. He said, if you had known the way to peace, but he says, now it's too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. As Jesus was telling them what would happen in the future, he cried as he saw the terrible judgment that was coming to the nation, to the city, and to the temple. And in AD 70, the Romans would come, and after a siege of 143 days, they would kill 600,000 Jews, they would take, a thousand more, take thousands more captive and destroy the temple and the city. Now, why did all of this happen? Because the people did not know that God was with them. What can... What can, we, what can we relate, or we can relate Jesus' words, you have known to our ignorance about tomorrow. Over and over and over again. We have, all, we have known, if we had not, if we had not, I'm sorry, if we had known what tomorrow is bringing, how differently would we live today? Every day, and especially in the last several months, man, we have heard on the news about many terrible, unexpected deaths. People who have gone into eternity. And I'm sure not one of them expected their lives to end the way that it did and when it did. If they had known. If they had known. We have just witnessed some of the most devastating hurricanes in a long time. A lot of lives were lost, as well as property. We saw the tragic shooting in Vegas just recently. 59 lives went into eternity. The Northern California fires, 40 people went into eternity. 19 people went into eternity at the Ariana Grande concert in the UK several months back. Most likely, they all got up that morning like many of us this morning. Like, you know, uh, like they had done for, for many years. Thinking, it's just another day. Like any other day. But then something unexpected ended their lives. If they had known. If they had known, these people probably wouldn't have gone to that concert in Vegas on that terrible day or the Ariana Grande concert. If they had known many of those people that were caught by surprise in the Northern California fires would have evacuated hours before. You see, the thing that we don't think about is that the next time it could be us. It could be you or me. Now, I'm not superstitious, and nor should we be, and we can't stop living, but... It's foolish to not look at these things without thinking, hey, it could happen to me. 
I'm not exempt from walking out here and somebody taking me out. But am I prepared? That's the key. Somewhere every single day, people are going into eternity unexpectedly. My question is, did they know Jesus? Were they prepared to go into eternity? We can relate Jesus' words, if you had known to the short-lived opportunities that we have in this life. One morning, just before leaving for work, a, a husband kissed his wife goodbye in the morning, a sign of making up for a heated argument they had the night before. But she was still mad. And she coldly turned away his kiss. Later in the day, she gets a call that her husband was killed in an accident. Her reply Oh, God, forgive me if I had only known. I would have talked to him like I should have. We could apply these words of Jesus, if you had known, to what we say every day. If we only knew what the results would be of certain things that we say and do, how differently we would speak and act. There was a man on a crowded train. Most of the passengers were trying to sleep. But a baby just kept crying and crying uncontrollably. Suddenly, a man yells out angrily, For Pete's sake, will the mother of that child keep that child quiet so the rest of us can get some sleep? Then another man, sobbing, answered the angry man. She can't. She's in a coffin in another car. I've been trying for the last two nights to comfort our baby. The irritated man went over to the sobbing father took the child in his arms, and eventually the child fell asleep. Then he took the child back to the grieving father and said, I'm so sorry that I spoke so harshly last night, if I had only known. Getting back to the money. It, it, money can't protect us from God's judgment. It can't protect us from sickness, from sin, disaster, from the things that, that we don't control. Some people think they'll be safe because they're educated or they have a good job or they have a needed skill or they have some kind of talent. But, but even these people go through hard times. These are false securities. They don't, guarantee a thing, they don't guarantee a thing but a crutch to depend on. You were not made to lean on yourself. You were made to lean on God. Proverbs 3, 5 through 7. Again, lean not on your own understanding. We are leaners. And when people say, oh, God is a crutch, you bet. I am to lean on him, not on my own understanding. Deuteronomy 33, through, uh, verse 27, it speaks about the eternal God is your refuge. And it says, and underneath are the everlasting arms. I, Isaiah 41.10 says, fear not, why? For I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you. Notice all the I wills. Notice all that God will do for you. He said, with my righteous right hand. Some think they can find security in families, in friends, in business associations. They're all human supports. There's no certainty in any of them, and at oftentimes they fail you. Psalmist said in, the psalmist said in 60, Psalm 60, verse 11 and 12, Give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. 
Through God we will do valiantly, for it is he who shall tread down our enemies. These words, I mean, I'm sorry, these worldly and human things are uncertain, but our God is not. He's a sure thing, yesterday, today, and forever. He's unshakable, and he's trustworthy. So verse 1 shows us two kinds of help that we can get from the Lord. He's a refuge, it says there, which is a stronghold. That is, he's somebody that we can run to. He's a source of inner strength where we can face disasters. God is our help even if the worst imaginable thing should happen to us. And this is what verses 2 and 3 are all about here. And as the psalmist imagines the chaos here, and if the earth is removed and the mountains crumble to the sea, we have a refuge to run to where we will be safe. And you know what? Sometimes that's just the way life is. Sometimes things are, you know, in life, they're removed from us. And sometimes things in life crumble to pieces. The foundations of our unshakable worlds are shaken to pieces and chaos seems to come. And sometimes it seems to come again. Elizabeth Elliot lost two husbands. Jim, who was a missionary, was killed by the Alca the, the, the Indians in Ecuador while he was out there trying to you know, share the gospel with them. Her second husband died as a result of illness. This is what she said. She related this Psalm 46 to what she suffered in those losses. She said, when I lost Jim, everything that has seemed most dependable has given way. Mountains are falling. Earth is reeling. In such a time, it's a profound comfort to know that although all things seem to be shaken, one thing is not, God is not shaken. And she went on to say that the thing we need to do most during these times is what the psalmist did later, as he says in verse 10, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. That he is God. Know that he is God, whether we recognize it or not. But it comforts us and it gives us a shot in the arm, kind of injecting strength into our wavering feelings to rest on that truth. And then verses 4 through 7, the psalmist uh, wants to talk about confidence in the presence of God because there are times when we feel that God is not even close to us. Look at verses 4 through 7. There is a river, the streams that shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She has not... She shall not be moved. God shall help her, and that right early. The nations raised, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. How many times have you felt the presence of God was nowhere to be found? He feels a million miles away. Well, these verses here speak first of the destruction of the armies of Ammon, Moab at, and Mount Seir during the reign of Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20. When Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat found out that armies were coming to attack him, he asked God, Lord, help us. God said he would deliver the people of Jerusalem. The people, the people weren't to fight. The people were to find a place where they could see what could happen. And when they did, 
They saw the soldiers of Ammon and Moab turn against the armies of Mount Seir, fighting against each other, and they destroyed themselves. In, in verse 24 of 2 Chronicles 20, when Judah's army got to the, lookout, to the lookout point in the wilderness, there were dead bodies on the ground as far as the eye could see. Not a single one of the enemy escaped, showing God's presence. Secondly, the destruction of the army of the Assyrian king uh, Sennacherib during King Hezekiah's reign is also described here in these verses. Uh, we find this story in 2 Kings 18 through 19. King Sennacherib stood at the walls of Jericho. He ordered the people to surrender. He told them, look, no gods have been able to defeat the Assyrian armies. He's surely not going to help you defeat us. There's nothing that you can do. Surrender. So Sennacherib sent King Hezekiah a letter saying the same thing. You know, you can't beat us. You're a lost hope. Your God can't help you. Hezekiah goes into the temple. He spreads that letter out before the Lord. And God answered him through Isaiah, saying that God would defend the city. And that night, God sent an angel that wiped out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And when the people got up the next morning, there was nothing but dead bodies lying all over the ground. The Assyrian army was the most dreaded army on earth at the time. Everybody trembled at the thought of the Assyrian army, even God's people. But God spoke, and 185,000 dreaded men were wiped out. You see, God alone is our defense. He is our ultimate security. Our ultimate security does not rest on any earthly thing or any earthly army. Then he goes on to say in verse 4, there is a river. There is a river. There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God. The city of God is, is again, is, is the joy to the church. There is a river that, that brings joy to the church, the city of God. Even in the worst times, there's a river whose streams will make us glad. The biggest fear during a war back in Bible days was that their, their, their water supply would be cut off during the attack. If the city could keep their water supply safe, the city could hold out against attacks for any, for, for, you know, in different, uh, um, for, for long periods of time. That's why the enemy does whatever he can to cut off your water supply, which is the word of God. He knows you cannot live without the water of the word of God. And that's why he will keep you busy. That's an acrobat for being under Satan's yoke. Always remember, with, oh, well, I'm just so busy. Well, you're, you're being under Satan's yoke. If he can keep you so busy and so occupied, even with good things, he's doing his job. And he's being successful if he can keep you out of the word of God. You need the water of the word. What is the river that makes the city of God? The, glad, the, uh, the city of God? It's God himself. He's our river. God, it says in verse 5, is in the midst of her. God the Father is the river. Jeremiah 2.13 says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, notice, the fountain of living waters. And they have hewed or cut out their own cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. 
God the Son is the river. Zechariah 13.1. Again, he's the foundation of salvation. In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. The Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit is the river. John 7.38. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. John 4.14. Whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. What are the streams of this river? The perfections of God. The fullness of Christ. The works of the Holy Spirit. All the promises of God through the word that's that brings us the joy the psalmist said in psalm 65 9 the river of god is full of water i love that we never have to worry about it running out it's a fountain that continues to flow we can go to it as often as we need to drink of that living water never worrying about it running dry also in verse 4 jerusalem which, like the church, is described as being well supplied with water. And it's to establish the fact that in times of trial, God's grace will be given to us uh, or given, given to make it possible for us to endure to the end. Remember Paul's words or, or, or Jesus' words to Paul? My grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. God's word and judgments are rivers and streams that God uses to make his saints glad during dark and cloudy days. God himself is a place of wide rivers and streams of grace to his church. And though heaven and earth are shaken, remember, though heaven and earth are shaken, God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved because it is built on the rock and Jesus said the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He'll help her in times of troubles so that she doesn't sink. And the more the church is afflicted, the more she will flourish. Notice what it says at the end of verse 5. That he will help her early. What does that mean? Very quickly and out of her troubles because the Lord of hosts is with us. He is present with us. He is present help and he's right on time. And when you're at the end of your rope, that's where you'll find the beginning of God. The beginning of God, right when you need him the most. And you know what? This applies to every believer. Every believer. If God is in our hearts, he is in the midst of us by his, if his word is dwelling richly in us. If it is, we will be established. We will be helped. That's why we need to trust the word of God and not be afraid. And we need to, again, know that, that everything's going to be okay and that it's going to end well. Then in verses 8 through 10, the psalmist speaks about the confidence in the power of God. You know, God has the power to do anything that needs to be done. Look at verses 8 through 10. Come, behold the works of the Lord. What desolations he has made in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow. He cuts the spear asunder. He burns the chariot in the fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. 
These verses now look to the future when God is going to defeat all armies and he's going to set up his eternal reign. So knowing this, he says there in verse 10, be still and know that I am God. What he's saying here is, hey folks, don't fret. Don't freak out. Don't struggle. Don't, don't interfere with what I am doing. Now this doesn't mean you just sit back and you, and you just think about God, though that's important. It means put down your weapons. It means surrender. It means recognize that I am the one and the only God. I always win. He always wins. But we ask the question, it's so hard to do that. Yeah. How can you sit still when the fires of hell are knocking at your door? But you know what? That's the picture that's given here quietness and calmness in the midst of the storm only believing in a presence near us with us and in us can encourage us and it's what keeps us stable when everything around us is shaking and it will take away the urge that i have to do something isn't that something that you just you start to feel when you you feel that god is not around that his presence isn't there and he's not helping is that I got to do something. I can't just sit and wait upon God. I can't be still and, and, and wait upon. I got to do something. Well, again, believing in his presence near us, with us, and in us, it will take away that, that, that need that I have to get involved. God, I, and I need to help you out. Or it'll take away that fear that petrifies you. It stops you dead in your tracks. It keeps you from moving forward with God. He says here, be still and know. How do I know? The word of God says so. That's why I need to read the word. I stand upon the promises. You can't know this quietness here unless you are still. You keep run, if you keep running, if you ever noticed, I, I, well, I have a dog when he runs along the, the road or he's, he's lost, he just keeps running. He just keeps running. Pretty soon he's going to end up dead on the side of the road. And, and that's what we tend to, we just keep running when we're lost. We just keep going because we don't know where to go. Until you can be still, you can't be rescued. It's like a drowning person. I've heard it said that, you know what, a lot of times they wait till that person who's drowning is almost exhausted and ready to go down before they go to rescue him because while he's still got life and breath and he's kicking, many times they bring the rescuer down with them. But instead we stop kicking and, and, and screaming and, and just, you know, trying to do it on our own. We can't be rescued. So he lead, and the psalmist that says, you know, in Psalm 20, he leads me to what? Still waters. We have to allow the shepherd to lead us to still waters. Be still and know that I am God. God says, hey, I'm God. The psalmist saying, he's not some figment of your imagination. He's not someone that you make me. God says, I'm, I'm not somebody you make me out to be by what you think of me. I am a living person. 
Israel had to learn through the school of hard knocks. Israel was trained in the school of hard knocks to learn this lesson. They suffered so many things. God allowed them to suffer so many things so they could feel the emptiness and the false security of all the idol worship that they were involved in. And to make them know that God alone was the invisible king and deliverer of their souls. They must, they must seek him in stillness in order to get to know him. And they must confess him to be the Lord of their once rebellious lives. Which, in trying to be independent, made them miserable slaves. Satan wants you to be independent of God. He'd love for you to act upon your own. God is saying, hey, be still. Be still and know that I am God. But the lesson wouldn't have been any good here without the next words in verse 10. I will be exalted among the nations. In other words, just believing in God's presence and his character and his goodness, they would have been just words, just words, if they hadn't been followed up with this belief in his power with this assurance that his power would one day be seen over all the universe and it would defeat all those that opposed him. He said, be still and know that I am God. Because you see, God is God. God is God. That is enough to stop all doubts about his sovereignty. I am God. And because he's God, he's a totally and infinitely perfect being. And because he's God, he's infinitely above all understanding. And because he's God, he'll be sovereign and he will act according to his sovereignty. And because he's God, he's able to deal with himself, deal personally with those who come against his sovereignty. So how is it, how, how can we be still while everything around us is spinning out of control, while everything is so messed up, when everything is so turned upside down, how can we be still while everybody is hustling us? Everybody's trying to get over on everybody. The answer for sure should be because there is still, or sorry, there is all this changing unrest and insecurity. While this is all going on, this is the time to obey God's word, be Still, be still. We can be absolutely sure that if we are not still, we will never know that the Lord is God. We won't believe. Though we may say so, that he's God, we may not, you know. We won't believe that he abides and that he's with us. Unless we stand still. Even though the earth be removed and though the mountains crumble into the sea. We must know that he is God. And if we don't believe that, what else can you believe? What else can you believe? What else is there to believe that will help us? So remember this, the next time you're nervous and you're fidgety and you're wanting to interfere with what God is doing in your life, when you want to interfere with God's plans for your life, remember these three admonitions. The one here in Psalm 46.10, to be still and know that I am God. 
Exodus 14, 13, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And Ruth 3, 18, sit still. Notice, sit still until you know how the matter turns out. God does not need our help. Many times when we try to help him, guess what? Now we got to sit back and let him undo the mess that we made. Verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. Notice that. The Lord of hosts is with us. Emmanuel, God with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. The Lord of hosts is with us. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. This God, who is the people's refuge, is given two names here. The Lord of hosts, which means he is the Lord Almighty. The word host refers to the armies of Israel, to the angelic armies of God. We see the example of the angelic armies of God in action in 2 Kings chapter 6. We have a beautiful peek into the power of God's hosts, his armies, in the story of Elisha at the city of Dothan when he was surrounded by the, the armies of Ben-Hadad of Syria. When they were trying to capture Elisha, and they were discovered early in the morning by Elisha's young servant. And when he saw the soldiers and the chariots positioned around the city, he hurried back inside and he told Elisha, man, look, he says, he, he says Elisha, what shall we do? He says, oh, my Lord. God, Elisha goes, oh, Lord, what shall we do? Elisha prayed, Lord, open the eyes of my servant to see the heavenly host protecting him. And when God did, the servant then opened his eyes and he saw the hills. They were filled with horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Secondly, God is the God of Jacob, it says there in verse 11. Jacob, as we know, he was a schemer, a conniver. It took his whole life. It took Jacob's whole life to learn to trust God. And yet the God of Abraham was his God just like he was Abraham's God. In closing, this is your God too. If you come to him through faith in Jesus Christ, and if he's your God, then he is with you all the time and at all times, which is what the verse is telling us here. Can you say the Almighty is with you this morning? Can you claim him as the Almighty God? Is the, is, he the God of, is the God of Jacob your refuge this morning? Like he was Abraham's and Jacob's and David's and so many others. Make sure that he is. Because the storms of life will come. And the greatest storm of all will be the final judgment the day you stand before God. Make Jesus your refuge right now while you still can, while you can still run to him. Because again, you don't know what tomorrow is bringing. Like all of those that went in eternity in these last several months, they didn't know what was coming. Don't foolishly think that will not happen to me. I guarantee you, none of those people thought that would happen to them either. If we knew, I mean, if we knew all of the great 
issues of eternity, about eternity, what they hold for us, how differently many of us would use our time. So what about you this morning? You're still here. You can still make a decision for Christ. You still have a chance to change your words and your actions today. It is not too late for you to turn your life around.